Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week, we discuss... Downing Street's war with the civil service, and you ask us, does Rebecca Long-Bailey's sacking spell the end for the Corbynites? So we had the news over the weekend that Mark Sedwell, the cabinet secretary, will be standing down. He's also the national security advisor as well in September. This is sort of the latest explosive news in the kind of tensions between Downing Street and Dominic Cummings's operation and the civil service. And Alva, you were covering this over the weekend. So why is he standing down and what does it actually mean? So I suppose we're never going to know for certain why he's standing down because the nature of his role means that as a civil servant, he can't speak publicly about these things. So we can only really infer it from various newspaper briefings which probably have varying degrees of reliability. But basically, it looks as though he had lots of long-standing disagreements with Dominic Cummings, particularly over the government's handling of the coronavirus crisis, and that relations... There's a really good piece by Francis Elliott in The Times today on this, which is where I'm getting this from. But it looks as though the kind of the breaking point in the relationship between Mark Sedwell and Boris Johnson took place in that meeting where Boris Johnson asked who was responsible for implementing a particular aspect of the coronavirus response. And he asked Mark Sedwell if if Sedwell was responsible for it. And he said, no, no, you are prime minister. And that was briefed to the Sunday papers. It was in the Sunday Times. And that got out. And I think it was the straw that broke the camel's back in relations and the, the nature of the role of cabinet secretary as well as all the other aspects, you are a civil servant advisor to the prime minister. And if that relationship breaks down and your advice is no longer required or trusted by the prime minister, then like you both know that the game is up. And so Mark Sedwell tendered his resignation. And you can see in the wording of his resignation letter as well, you know, he says, we have agreed, which very much makes it clear that even though the prime minister doesn't have the power to sack a civil servant, that definitely the the prime minister had some involvement in it. In terms of what it means, it means that Stephen wrote about this in Morning Call this morning as well. It means in the short term that the roles of cabinet secretary and national security advisor will be split again. And the national security advisor will be David Frost, who's currently the 
the chief government negotiator for the future relationship with the European Union. And he's a former civil servant, but it's a political appointment in both cases. There's always been a bit of confusion around the sort of the constitutional propriety of his role as negotiator. And then again, with this one, I think lots of people are frustrated that someone without necessarily the security expertise or coming from within the Whitehall machine is taking on that role. And then the the hunt for a cabinet secretary begins. Yeah. And and I suppose in the context of this government's relationship with, with Whitehall, this is sort of yet another story in the kind of purging of senior civil servants, isn't it? Because the former permanent secretary at the Home Office is now sort of bringing an unfair dismissal case against, well, Priti Patel's administration of that department. And then the permanent secretary of the Foreign Office will also be leaving with the merger with DFID. So should we just read this as, you know, a shake up of people at the top because, you know, Dominic Cummings wants to try and turn the leadership around so that he has a, he has fresh faces in positions that he feels he can work better with because we know that he's sort of a, a regular and longtime critic of Whitehall? Or is this story in itself more telling in terms of how the government is trying to position itself in terms of its failings in the pandemic response? It's interesting, right, because some of it does kind of have this sort of feeling of, you know, that genre of um, opinion piece and is obviously very widely and deservedly mocked, which is like, you know, this once in a lifetime pandemic suggests we should do the things I've always believed. <laughs> Equally, right, so of course the NSA post is a new one, right? It was invented in 2010 under David Cameron. And one of the things it's meant to do is provide joined up thinking across government and across the national security piece. It does seem to me that A wholly relevant question for the government in terms of when it did and didn't lock down is why, when the Chinese government halted restrictions on movement over the Chinese New Year, halting, you know, one of, I think, potentially actually the biggest internal migrations of, of people ever, people going home for the holidays, which was very hard to reconcile with what they were then saying and the WHO was then saying about the scale of asymptomatic transmission, so people who don't seem like they have COVID-19 who spread it. I think it is a good question to ask, seeing as there were people in the kind of what you might describe as like the foreign office bureaucracy, you know, kind of who were going, well, that seems worrying. Why, given we now have the minutes of SAGE, the scientists, and they clearly believe they had more time to get more data, surely, I think it's fair to say something has gone wrong if, that kind of diplomatic intelligence wasn't able to feed in to the other problem. I mean, and this, I guess this is where it comes back to the fact that I think inquiries are good in of themselves, right? Because this is why it would be useful to have an inquiry into what went wrong that would inform the structure of the government going forward, rather than instead what does feel like... So Michael Gove's done a very long speech summarising the argument and saying out the direction they want to go to. But in practice, it does kind of feel like what they tend to want to do is they just want to centralise power at the heart of government and appoint people who they know. Now, obviously, on both of those, they would hardly be the first people in government to do that. But uh, but they very much seem to have taken it to its to the nth degree. And I think that feels to me like the big question about all of this is that does it in practice show what the actual end state of all of this reform is, which is centralising in the kind of, you know, a familiar group of socially and politically connected men who have impeccable establishment credentials other than the fact they happen to be leavers. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose it also sort of has the impact 
the happy collateral impact for, for someone like Dominic Cummings in that it signals to the rest of the civil service what kind of government they're going to be working with for the next few years. So if people don't like that, the kind of hostile briefings that were sent out about Mark Sedwell, and they don't like the idea of working for this government who appeared to be trying to position Whitehall in a less flattering light by the time we come to that inquiry into the pandemic response, then, you know, that's the sort of message to them, isn't it? Time for voluntary redundancy or time to go and do something different. And that way you get the result that you want, which is a more sympathetic civil service to your ideals. And that's certainly, you know, the feeling of some civil servants in this past few weeks. I think this is the this is the thing I'm I'm still unsure about, because I think it's in some ways harder than you might think to map the the recent high level resignations that we've seen from civil servants onto the government's long standing aim of reforming Whitehall. Like I think they overlap, but they aren't entirely the same thing. Like I think it's probably not unfair to say that the main reason those people left was because of lots of hostile briefings against them to which they couldn't respond because of their nature as impartial civil servants. But I suppose we don't know exactly what has gone on behind the scenes there or what it was that forced them out. But I think that the broader politics of their plans to reform Whitehall and the symbolism of Mark Sedwell leaving at this point are really, really interesting because everyone knows that reforming Whitehall has been a, a like a pet project of Dominic Cummings for years and he's blogged on it extensively and it was one of the things that really frustrated him when he was a special advisor to Michael Gove when Gove was education secretary that he got very frustrated by various perceived failings within the Whitehall machine and since the beginning of the Johnson government reforming Whitehall has been really high up on their agenda but you can sort of see now that we're moving away from the COVID response and the government is trying to sort of revive its broader priorities for government so it's reviving its leveling up agenda and it's reviving Whitehall reform you can kind of see how that's being co-opted for a specific political purpose so Stephen mentioned Michael Gove's speech at the weekend which outlines, I mean, it's a, it's a very, very interesting speech in terms of outlining the, the plans, not just in terms of reforming Whitehall, but the, the big diagnosis of what is wrong in British society at the moment. And basically, it, yeah, the, the first half is, I think, quite a useful analysis of certainly what Michael Gove thinks are the big forces globally and in British politics in particular, affecting the way our politics is. And he misses some things out and definitely doesn't really consider the role of the Conservative government in those changes but it's like quite a compelling and interesting analysis and then the second part is really all about Whitehall reform which is a bit of a weird jump because it seems in some ways only a very sort of partial way of addressing all of the big problems of the first half and so it it, you know it's mainly talking about like problems of of recruitment within the civil service and you know how they tend to they're all based in London even though they aren't actually all based in London but in Michael Gove's report they are and you know based in London and like all doing humanities degrees or all humanities graduates all sort of victims of a kind of groupthink, not qualified in statistics or maths and there's a really patronizing bit where he talks about how they need to learn how to make presentations and do time management a bit better and <laughs> Yeah, the, the, but like 
that there's a serious problem with a lack of institutional memory because people leave departments very quickly. And then under sort of various other criticisms of systemic failings within Whitehall and Gove sort of makes a case for better data collection and better improved efforts to analyze the effectiveness of policies long after they've been implemented. Like a lot of the analysis is right, but I just find it so frustrating because of the, and I think this is where it comes back to the Mark Sedwell point on, on why this is political in that it looks entirely at the civil service. He, Michael Gove very much talks about government as though he hasn't been in government for a decade and targets like the, the civil service in particular with a lot of criticism, some of which are valid, but there's really like no effort to look at the Conservative Party as a, as a party of government and what could happen within that to improve those structures. So like the Conservative Party could look at its own recruitment problems and think about the kinds of people that it is recruiting as parliamentary candidates if they want to have greater expertise among policymakers and more, you know, more mathematical abilities, fewer people from the South, fewer people, like fewer Oxbridge humanities people. That you know, the Conservative Party can look at its own policymaking processes in more detail and address problems of ministerial churn, which Gove mentions in his speech, but doesn't sort of take on seriously. You can kind of see the validity of a lot of his of his arguments. Like not all of the criticisms of the civil service are wrong. Like some of them are totally right and things that civil servants would privately tell you are, are totally accurate and need to be addressed. But in the context of a a cat of a government where we know that cabinet ministers are being picked for their loyalty and not for their competence and where the competent cabinet ministers like Judy and Smith get fired for doing a good job and building trust in, in among both communities in Northern Ireland, but annoying Tory backbenchers, like people like him get fired. You can see how this wider diagnosis of like all the problems in Whitehall and all the things they have to do because this, this is an elite who are so out of touch with ordinary people. You can see how that becomes political and how that can service a particular argument with regard to how the government handled its coronavirus response, that like already they are laying the groundwork for pointing the finger of blame at civil servants and Whitehall machinery and not at the people at the top, the ministers who, who ultimately make the decisions. I think that the Mark Settle resignation and, and, and the Gove speech and briefings from Cummings are all like very much pointing towards the big political argument that's coming over the horizon. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So because Stephen couldn't join us for the last podcast because he had to go off and cover the breaking news that um, that we were talking about, we'll have two questions on the Rebecca Long Bailey story this week. The first one, is anti-black racism being pitted against anti-Semitism in the Labour Party? I'm asking this in relation to left-wingers contrasting the sacking of Rebecca Long Bailey compared to no action having been taken against those accused of racism in that leaked report that we spoke about earlier this year. Stephen. Well, the, the thing I find interesting about them mean that nothing has been done on pe- about people accused of anti-black racism in the leaked report is people have been suspended for it. Yeah, so let's be honest, all, all, all leaks serve a political purpose. And one of the things that is kind of unwritten about that report and the circumstances of its leaking, as well as the fact that yeah, the things which have been addressed and you know the manner of its leaking and composition meant that you have the names of unredacted people floating about online, is then if I had wanted to shape a leak in a way which guaranteed that it demoralised my own side, I would have done it in that way, right? Because of the circumstances of the leaking and the various legal issues around it, large chunks of the report are not going to be discussed until Labour's second report itself reports and then it will be sharply limited so it just makes everyone involved on one side of the party feel powerless now i think that was partly the intention but it seemed to wildly underestimate the extent to which one pre-reaction people have to feeling powerless is of course to vote with their feet and leave the labor party i just don't think it's true i think you can come up with a that i think it is fair to say that labor is is now better at being robust on racism within its own ranks than it is in engaging seriously in whether or not the hostile environment is innately a a racist endeavour, right? I think that is a fair thing to say. However, and this is one of the things that I think people seem to miss, in some cases willfully, in some cases accidentally, the argument about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is not one about the party's policy position, because, spoiler alert, Labour's policy position on security for places of worship in the community in the United Kingdom did not change. It remained pro it throughout the period. Labour's position on Israel-Palestine did not change. It continued to be in the slightly more critical position that Ed Miliband, in a, a move that was you know, very divisive and fiercely contested within the community, but I personally think was, was the right approach, Yeah, it continued to be in that place. And actually, Labour Party policy has become more critical of the state of Israel under Keir Starmer. Now, that is partly because of political events and the the looming potential annexation of um, some or all of of the occupied territories and uh, and, and furthermore. But what has changed is then complaints of anti-Semitism are being dealt with more speedily. And what has changed is that you cannot share an untrue conspiracy theory on Twitter and keep your position in the shadow cabinet. So the kind of the procedural question has been leveled out. I think there are perfectly good questions about whether or not it's merely enough to be in, in and this is why I think one of the problems is people start to use it's like when people start chucking a word around institutional. So institutional is not like it's not like you know f- you know scales of racism like from you know lemon and herb all the way up to institutional. You're, you're, institutionally, <laughs> you're institutionally racist if, if the way your services, procedures, etc., etc., are accessed by people depending on their racial, ethnic, or, or cultural identity. Right? It, it's not about its intensity. So I think there is an open argument about 
once you've fixed the institutional problem, what are the things that you should do in order to have to be a, a genuinely anti-racist party in terms of its policy for the outside world? But I think there is a deliberate attempt to conflate the two in some quarters. But I think the bigger problem is not actually so much the question suggests this idea and it's like people doing it to be nefarious. I think the bigger problem is simply that people aren't aware of those important distinctions. And you see that right across the Labour Party, right? You saw that with all of the Corbyn sceptics who who were and continue in some cases to use the term institutional to mean a synonym for very, very bad. And you see that with people on the left who do not draw a distinction between the way the institution behaves towards its members, employers, etc., etc., and deals with complaints, and the way the party's platform is on these issues. Okay, but that nicely brings us on to the the next question on this topic, which is, after the firing of Rebecca Long-Bailey, what is the future of Corbynism in the Labour Party? Does it stay as a single movement? And who are the most likely leaders of the movement? So I don't know about anyone else, but so I think in an odd way, one of the consequences of it is that I think from an institutional perspective, the Labour left in Parliament was quite well placed in that it had a leader on the front bench in Becky Long Bailey, and it had on it had leaders on the back benches. It had a revitalised campaign group. It had several. I mean, it still has these things. It has several, um, you know, very charismatic and effective politicians coming through in the twenty nineteen intake who are on the back benches. I kind of think that one of the slight problems is although it makes Keir Starmer's job more difficult because some of the institutional power brokers will be against him, you know, the NEC floor of conference. I think it kind of means that she potentially goes from being a useful extra outlet for the Labour left to almost kind of a bed blocker, almost, right? I think in the same way you kind of saw with the Labour right in that you had, like, people who, for the most part, without wishing to be mean, were veterans of a failed era of Labour politics who kind of got deified by Corbyn, the Corbyn sceptic rank and file in a way that had no real relation to their actual flaws as a politician. It almost kind of stunted the development of of new of new talent and people. So I think that's one way it could go, but it also equally, I guess, could go the other, right? Like, it does feel one of the interesting things about the Labour Party is that it institutionally seems to be quite prone to kind of hero worship and saviour syndrome, right? You saw that with, like, the stuff around... Jess Phillips, in which a bunch of people decided that really what Labour needed after five years of a leader who'd never addressed Parliament from the dispatch box until they were leader learning on the job was another five years of a leader who'd never addressed Parliament Parliament from the dispatch box learn, learning on the job. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, diff- it's, it's a difficult question to answer because really the true question is how useful is it having members of your faction on the front bench? So... Having Rebecca Long-Bailey on the front bench meant, I think, that some people, some Labour supporters and outriders and also MPs of the left of the party were given enough cover to kind of give grudging support for Keir Starmer and, you know, be willing to work with this new leadership. And, you know, maybe you're not happy with all of the stances that he's taken, but, you know, you, you... you think, okay, he's doing well at PMQs and we can work with this. It sort of gave them cover for that. But now that he's now that he's sort of had her stand down, it's really difficult if you were always a sort of, you know, loyal Corbynite who finds, you know, Rebecca Long Bailey and those figures to be, you know, the future of the party in your mind. It's really difficult to carry on supporting that Starmer leadership 
at least, you know, even just by paying lip service to it anymore. So you've got to take an sort of oppositional stance towards him now and you've got to take on that role that the right of the party did during the Corbyn years from the backbenches. And I don't know whether that gives you more power or not because the right of the party, like you say, Stephen, they did some of their um, opposition to Corbyn wasn't wasn't at all productive or constructive. And indeed, you know, they didn't get a leader in their image of the party, although some people who who sort of think that Keir Starmer represents the right of the party would disagree with that. But like you say, if you look at the actual substance of his policies, then they then they didn't get the leader that they wanted. And perhaps the Corbynites have the danger if they sort of occupy more and more of that backbench, you know, firing grenades from from behind the leader kind of style of opposition, then they won't, they also won't get what they want in the future. Yeah, I think definitely the impression that you get from Labour Twitter or those on the left on Labour Twitter is that this has really changed things and that this was a sort of disproportionate move from Starmer and that their attitude towards his leadership has changed accordingly. But that doesn't, I think, really tally so much with what has actually happened in the parliamentary party. Like, Becca Long-Bailey was fired having refused to take that tweet on and apologise for it. But then she, as as Stephen says, she does kind of act like a bed blocker because in some ways she has sort of still said that she plans on being loyal to Keir and doesn't want there to be infighting. And then the socialist campaign group, even though individual figures, including John McDonnell, stated their solidarity with her and defended the tweet and so on. The Socialist Campaign Group as a whole didn't really do anything in that they shared the petition for Rebecca Longbailey to be reinstated, which has been completely meaningless and hasn't really had very many signatures. And they didn't release a statement um, And certainly they didn't release a statement which would contain the signatures of the Socialist Campaign Group. So what that meant in practice was none of the people who are still in the shadow cabinet or shadow junior ministers or PPSs, none of them really gave Keir Starmer an opportunity to discipline them or fire them. They actually kind of towed the line. I think we're a bit stuck as to how punchy they wanted to be in return. And... I shared a list on Twitter after Rebecca Longbailey was fired. There was talk that, you know, the Socialist Campaign Group weren't happy and they were discussing what they were going to do. And there was some talk of resignations. And so I sort of shared a little list of some people to watch for resignations, some people who would be in the Socialist Campaign Group and who are also somewhere involved in Keir Starmer's shadow ministerial team, like whether high up or not. And I mean, there were lots of kind of funny, but quite rude replies sort of suggesting that those weren't particularly big names. And then none of those people did resign or like use the the small amount of leverage that they that they would have by resigning from the shadow cabinet to, to create a bit of a storm. Like they clearly decided that on this issue, it wasn't worth it yet. So in practice, you still have lots of people from that side of the party or not lots but you still have some people from that side of the party within the shadow cabinet or those like more junior shadow ranks people like Lloyd Russell Moyle who like very controversially over the weekend sort of said something controversial about JK Rowling and um, then subsequently apologized and Keir Starmer decided not to fire him so that there are people who 
have still decided it's worth remaining in the tent rather than out. And over the coming weeks, I'm hoping to get more into the inner workings of the socialist campaign group because I, my understanding is that they aren't all on the same page about where the Corbynite left should go next. But just, yeah, my understanding is that there's just a, maybe a feeling of, of a lack of, of leverage and, and, a, and a bit of confusion when your, your main person on the front bench gets fired as to how you show your discontent with that and, and how you make an impact in the longer term. Like clearly the calculation of, of those people, either, either collectively or just as individual politicians, decided that it was more worth their while staying in and maybe hoping for some progression up the ranks than it was to resign over this matter. Yeah, so you're completely right, Alva, to say that the Socialist Campaign Group has kind of two main tendencies, and I, I'm afraid I have not sat down and worked out what the actual bench strength of these these two schools of thought are, but you can see it's played out in various articles for Labour List and, and other places. Essentially, one group kind of thinks that they should be acting, you know, very strongly collectively, you know, hence the increased use of headed paper, joint statements, organising, you know, in the kind of same way analogous to, you know, the ERG under Theresa May. And some people think it should be a more loose association of politicians on the left of the Labour Party. And in some ways, I think kind of throwing another variable of someone who kind of has like the mainstream media gravitas of um, sacked shadow cabinet minister and former Labour leadership rival, rival Rebecca Long-Bailey complicates all of those divisions further. But I think one of the other ways, and it's not a very clean division, is then, and this I think is shown by the fact that the response to it was kind of divided on the Labour left, is that in refusing to retract or apologise for the statement in the tweet, in, in the interview, we shouldn't forget Maxine Peake has retracted and apologised, she made herself the kind of candidate of well, there's no nice way of saying it, primarily of cranks on the Labour left. But she herself is not a crank. She signed the Board of Deputies and JLC pledges. She is someone who has talked about the need to tackle the problem of Labour anti-Semitism and has been criticised by many of the people who are now kind of donning the, you know, free the Salford and Eccles one kind of T-shirts. And... I think that means that in the long term, I cannot see how she would want to be, let alone would do a particularly plausible job of occupying the role of leadership of that group. But again, her kind of presence as a sort of figure of circum of substance there kind of, I think, will have the kind of same bed blocking tendencies we saw on the Labour right under Corbyn, where you just had, you know, as I've said, you know, people knocking around who 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 kind of stymied the ability of other people to come through. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush and Alva Ray. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.